Chapter Thirteen of Mothering on Perilous by Lucy Furman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Around the Fire. Second Monday, October. Though the days are still warm, the nights are getting cool, and for the sake of bare toes, we began last night having a fire in the sitting room. It was the one thing needed. I see that with its glowing warmth to gather around, our family life will henceforth be much more intimate and cheerful. Sidney Lanier says that two things are necessary to the making of a real home, an open fire and music. We have both. The fire had hardly begun to crackle before Absalom had the banjo out and was singing in the chimney corner. Not bloody, recent song ballads this time, but to my joy, famous old English ones, forgotten centuries ago by the rest of the world, but wonderfully preserved here in the mountain country. Barbara Allen was one ballad he sang. Turkish Lady, The Brown Girl, and The Spectre Ship were others. All the tunes were queer, minor, and long drawn out, and sung in a kind of falsetto, and between verses there is a very weary period of picking. The boys all declare they prefer the newer ballads, such as Blant's Revengement and The Doom of the Mohuns, and that these old ones are fit only for women folks. But I noticed they listened absorbed. FRIDAY Yesterday a wagon came in from the railroad. A great occasion it is when one arrives, all of us women flocking out and surrounding it before the mules can stop and receiving the packages and boxes destined for us as if they were the most precious jewels. Indeed, they are valuable after coming that long and difficult way. I was glad to find that my cheerful dresses ordered last month had arrived, as well as the wire corn poppers and some rolls of wallpaper with great red roses for our sitting-room. SATURDAY NIGHT Cleo and Howard put the lovely red paper on our sitting-room to-day. When the boys and I came in from the garden, it was all done, and a shout of delight went up. Of course, they have never seen anything so beautiful. I had another surprise for them. Prettiest of all my new dresses is a cardinal crepe de chine, exactly matching the wallpaper. I put it on for supper to-night, getting to the dining-room a little late. There was much excitement at our table as I entered, and Jason created a sensation by calling out in his shrill voice, "'Oh, yander comes my red stick of candy!' Nucky said not a word, but the pride in his eyes was sufficient. All during the meal, the boys vied with one another in passing me things, and in saying, "'Yes, ma'am,' and "'No, ma'am,' and I saw them glancing around at other tables to observe the effect of my grand costume." who, seeing me sit here before our cottage fire this evening, clothed in the color of life and joy, with my happy and cheerful family close around, would ever believe me to be the same woman who arrived here something more than two months ago, with a heart even more dark and desolate than her garb of woe. Truly, the ways and goodness of God are past imagining. THURSDAY NIGHT that the fraternal affection of the little Salyers is sound at the core, much evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, was proved beyond doubt by an occurrence last night. Hen is by nature deliberate, and is especially so about washing his feet and getting undressed at night, 
not yet having become reconciled in his mind to either process. He always retires after Keats, and now the nights are cooler, first tries to root Keats out of his warm place, and failing in that, doubles up and plants his cold feet in the middle of Keats's back. The long-suffering Keats rebels, and then follow howls, yells, and a pitched battle, with shrill cries for me from Geordie Yance, the third boy in the bed. When I arrive, the covers are on the floor, and the boys fighting all over their own bed, the other bed and boys, and the entire room, and calling down horrible imprecations upon each other. In vain I have forbidden the use of the shocking language. Neither threats nor punishments have prevailed. Last night, after a particularly bad time, I called them into my room, explained to them the full meaning of the words they were using, and asking if either could possibly hate his brother enough to wish to consign him to eternal torment. They made no answer, but went off looking thoughtful. Tonight, when shrieks and howls announced the usual battle, and I hurried to the scene, the Salyers were pounding each other as mercilessly as ever. But this time, to my unspeakable relief, they were calling out furiously, "'God help you! God help you!' A decided change for the better, and, I thought, a most timely petition." In their sane moments now, they talk of nothing but Cousin Emmeline's funeral occasion and the visit home, and it is impossible for them to decide whom they most desire to see, whether Nervisty or Sammy or Ponto, or the Steers, Buck, and Brandy, while their longing extends also to the other children, and to Charlie the flea-bit nag, old Suki the pied cow, Reddy the heifer, and the black sow, Julia. Sunday evening. On our way to the church house this morning, I noticed that Irie wore the long, ample, homespun trousers in which he arrived. Where are your Sunday breeches I gave you? I inquired. There they are, he said, pointing to Geordie's fat legs, which seemed about to burst out of a pair of dark blue short trousers. Irie, he just pestered me into trading with him, was Geordie's explanation. He said he were bound to have that gold ring I got out of a prize box last week. Show it to her, Irie. Irie put forth a small, dingy hand, adorned with a large, elaborate brass ring. But you can see that wasn't a fair trade, I said indignantly to Geordie. I knowed it weren't. I knowed that ring were worth five times them breeches, and I'd never see its likes again. But I felt sorry for him. He wanted it so bad. No, I mean just the other way, I said sharply. You paid a nickel for that prize box, didn't you? Yes'm. And there was candy in it? A little grain. And you ate it? What there were of it? And now you want to trade him the ring, which cannot be worth more than two cents, for his Sunday breeches? The born trader looked at me pityingly. Miss Loring, he said, Women folks hain't got no understandin' of prize boxes. Sometimes you pay your nickel down and don't get everything in em. And then again there's jewelries nobody can't tell what they worth they so fine. They ain't nary ring like that ever been seed in these parts. Iry Atkins has got the onlyest ring like it on Perilous, and I reckon in Kent County, or maybe in Kentucky. What's breeches to that? To this master argument, 
the fact that the ring would not keep Iris' legs warm in winter seemed a puerile answer. Still, with cold weather coming on, and clothing scarce as hen's teeth, I was compelled to break up the trade, and to forbid Geordie's making any more. In the afternoon we went up on Perilous, persimmon and buckeye hunting, and later, after filling their shirt fronts with a shiny ammunition, the boys lined up on opposite sides of the creek and had a buckeye battle. After supper I began reading the story of Odysseus. When we came to the place where the hero makes his escape from the cave of Polyphemus, Nucky interrupted to tell the tale he promised while we were on trigger of Blant's escape last spring, when for the first and only time he was arrested by officers. It was the day when he was laywayed by L. Hannon, Todd, and Dot, and had killed one and almost killed the other two. The sheriff happened to be on Powderhorn near the mouth of Trigger at the time, received the news at once, and reached the Mars home within an hour after the occurrence. Blant, not dreaming of so prompt an attempt at arrest, was sitting before the fire cleaning his forty-five and before he knew it, the sheriff stepped between him and his ammunition. Quiet surrender was the only possible thing. The sheriff and deputy started with him to the jail here in our village, but being overtaken by darkness on the way, were obliged to stop overnight at a wayside house. Blant went to bed, handcuffed between the sheriff and deputy, each of whom retired with a loaded revolver in his hand. In the morning the prisoner was gone, the blanket that had covered the three swung from the window, and the two revolvers were found on the ground beneath, placed neatly side by side. They ain't no men or no prison nowhere Blant couldn't get away from if he was a mind to, said Nucky. He wouldn't fool around and see his friends et up like Odysseus. The character of Odysseus also brought out some family history from Geordie and Absalom. It appears that their grandfather, old George Yance, was a man noted in several ways as a hard-shell preacher, as a wonderful nag-trader, and, like Odysseus, as a man of craft and guile in wars. Warring factions would come to him for advice, and his stratagems, when carried out, were brilliantly successful. The boys, with much pride, told some awful instances. They also said, that all of his thirteen sons were mean men, their own father having met death at too early an age to become as distinguished as the other twelve. As I listened, I marveled, not that the born trader's morality is a little oblique, but that he has any at all. Wednesday Today I saw Philip hold out a handful of chestnuts to Toby, his bosom friend, with the words, Don't take more than five, you're owing me now. You ain't gone treat for all us. Perfect candor is evidently the sure, if rocky, foundation of their relationship. Saturday night. More family history as we were roasting sweet potatoes in the hot ashes under our fire tonight. Irie said he could recollect roasting them while the men made his ma's coffin. I never knowed no better, he said. I weren't but three, and thought she was laying there asleep. I wondered what them men was a-hammerin' at outside. When I seed em take her off in it, I knowed. She were the best step-maw ever I had, remarked Joab feelingly. How many have you had? I inquired. 
Ah, Pa, he's had about five women, he mused. My ma first, and then Iris, and there's three cents. Cyril D. Bing, his next to last, was a middling civil woman. But she never stayed long. This last one is just fifteen, and hain't got no manners. I have to fight her most every day. She picks on me and Iris so. Pa, he has a sorry time learning her to behave. I have heard something about your pa being right smart of a mean man, said Philip. Bet he can't hold a candle to Blant, put in Nucky jealously. Maybe he can't, maybe he can, drawled Joab provokingly. Nobody hain't as quick on the trigger as Blant, declared Nucky. I'll bet nobody hain't kilt and wounded more inside a few months than him, or would have been in jail more times if the officers could have caught him and helped him. Jail? murmured Joab contemptuously. Jail hain't nothin'. My pa spent two year at Frankfurt. The boys all exclaimed in admiration. Gee-o, said Philip with new respect. I never knowed he'd been penitentiaried. How many has he killed? inquired Nucky skeptically. Ah, no more'n he had to, drawled Joab. I heard something about his killin' off a few lusks said Toby. Yes, a few, admitted Joab. Sarildy being, that next to last of his, she got to talkin' some to a couple of the Lusks, and Paul got wind of it, and caught him a-hangin' around one day. But he never killed but one dead, and soon as t'other got able to talk, he sought all the Lusks again, Pa. There was nine on his track, lay wayin' and ambushin'. At last, one day, they all rid up behind him over on the head of Rakeshin. He seed a turn in the road ahead, where there was a big rock. Every time they'd shoot, he'd jump like he was hit, and just as he got to the rock, he spraddled out flat on his nag like he was dead. That was the last they seed, and they came up a-whoopin', thinkin' they had him killed. And about that time six of em got bullets in em, and three drapped dead, for Pa had clim up on the rock and was a-layin' for em. Time the rest of the lusts got up from their wounds, they allowed Pa was a mean enough man to leave alone. Nucky was silenced. The impressive pause that followed was at last broken by Philip. What did he do with Seraldy? he asked. Oh, nothing but shoot off a piece of her jaw and a little grain of her scalp. Philip meditated again. I expect that's the reason Seraldy left your pa, ain't it? Women's so queer. Maybe, replied Joab indifferently. Oh, my perfect gentleman. Thursday. Shinny went out and Ball came in yesterday. When at noon the boys all ran to me begging for yarn, of course store balls are an unknown luxury. And when later I saw Philip, Keats, and Hosea raveling out old socks they said they had bought from Geordie, Talby engaged upon a piece of the old comforter he had traded off for a pop-gun, and now bought back at a ruinous price, and heard Killis and Joab bemoaning the fact that they had traded mittens and socks off for pop-guns, and telling of the vast sums Geordie was making selling these, and like remains to the day-schools. I realized that even as far back as pop-gun time the forelooker was dealing in ball futures, and that his transactions then were not even as magnanimous as I had supposed them to be. Saturday and Sunday are the longed-for days of Cousin Emmeline's funeral occasion. 
We are to start to-morrow, Friday, afternoon, and the two homesicks are beside themselves with joy. End of chapter 13